Bismillahirrahmanirrahim ve sallallahu ala seyyidina Muhammedin ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem. In the scripture, in the revelation of the Quran, the divine refers to self and describes self as the one who exists by right, who is eternal and absolute, without beginning and without end, without the need to change. The divine is completely self-sufficient and doesn't rely on anything. And the divine is unique in those ways. The divine also refers to self as both creator and evolver. And so the divine becomes the source of all things in the physical material world that are bound by space and time, that do have a beginning and end. These things are dissimilar from the creator in the sense that they're dependent on the creator. And so they have their place in creation. And the creator refers to self as both creator and evolver. And there's a point at which the creation is set up and there's an announcement that's made that indicates the creation of the human being, the advent of the human being. And in the Quran, what's said is that there's an announcement made to the creation by the creator and the evolver that I'm going to make in this world, in this creation, in this universe, a being who's called a Khalifa in the language of the Quran, meaning that this will be a being that has a unique ability to make decisions for self that has a unique ability to understand and to see and to be and to make decisions that's different from anything else in creation. This one will have a degree of self-determination and of sovereignty and will have a certain ability to make decisions for itself. And so in the creation that already exists, the angels, these beings of light who represent goodness, who represent complete service of the divine with complete submission, with complete beauty and precision. These perfect beings ask the question about the human being to the creator. They say, if you're going to create something like this, won't this new creature of yours have the ability to do a lot of damage, to do all type of mischief, to create disharmony, to harm, to oppress, all of this, to do evil and to shed blood. And our teachers in Islam tell us that inside of that question that angels are asking on behalf of all of creation about everything that the human beings would ever do wrong, from the smallest infractions to the greatest atrocities, it's all in that question. If you give this new creation this ability and this, this trust isn't there the potential for bloodshed and every type of harm and chaos? And also the implication that some would see there is that the creation itself before the human being is created and evolved. Isn't there a divine harmony in creation where everything knows its place and where everything is in the proper alignment, in the proper symmetry, in the proper balance, 
the creation before the human being has this divine harmony. And now here comes the human being with the ability to make decisions for itself. And so the angels ask the question, can't there be a lot of trouble there? And the response of the divine is, I know what you don't know. So the divine that's referred to in the Quran, in the language of the Quran, as Allah. Allah says, doesn't say no, no, don't worry about it. The divine says, I know what you don't know. And then the divine proceeds to teach the human beings the names and nature of everything in creation. These, these human prototype, this human prototype. And then orders for all of creation to actually prostrate to the human being. And all of them do it, all of the angels and everything in creation, with the exception of one uh, who is known as Iblis, who becomes Shaitan in that act. And in that action, Iblis, as the proper name, becomes Shaitan, which is Satan, which is the devil. And the act that causes that or brings that about is that Shaitan, Iblis, who becomes Shaitan, says, I refuse to bow down to this one because I'm better than him. The words in the, in the language of the Quran are, Anna khayru minhu. First, the word is Anna, me. And our teachers tell us this is the first thing in creation that ever looks at the Creator and says, me. The first narcissist that says, me. And the next word is khayru, meaning better, minhu. I'm better than them. And then describes the creation. These beings in the Quranic narrative are called jinn, and they're created from a smokeless fire. And they're sometimes confused with angels, but they're not angels. They, in fact, have a certain type of will of their own. And the human beings are created from the mud and the dirt of the earth, which, as is pointed out, is seen as dark, but also includes all of the colors that we see in humanity are all in this human archetype. And so the, this being that disobeys and that says, I'm better than him, that I'm better than them, says, I'm created from fire and they're created from mud. And so I'm better than them and I refuse to bow to them. And then proceeds to try to convince the divine that the human being is nothing more than the worst of our nature, that the human being is the worst of themselves. So whatever the worst of a human being is, all the things that are implicated in that question, the human beings do have the ability to oppress and to do tremendous harm to themselves, to one another, to the world of meaning, to the natural world, to violate all of the balance and all of the sanctity and all of the symmetry and all of the beauty and all of the meaning and all the purpose. The human being has the ability to betray all of that and to defile all of that. And what Shaitan says is the human being, that's all they are. And so Shaitan has the first act or the first display of supremacy, of saying, I'm better than the human being. And also this archetypical supremacist narcissism. And, and, and the, the one that they're aiming, that, that shaitan is aiming that judgment at, is saying they are, in fact, the worst of who they are. The worst of who they are is what defines them. 
And so the, the story of the human being begins with this. And so then there's the story of the human beings making decisions and, and being given guidance and defying that guidance and being swindled out of that guidance. Shaitan, the archetype of evil, then goes on to, uh, to, to whisper and to deceive the human beings into focusing on materialism instead of the world of meaning, forgetting the world of meaning to seek more materialism. This is the devil. This is the archetype of the devil in the Quranic narrative. And then, th so the human beings forget and they slip and they're reminded and they have a sense of, of remorse and regret. And so they turn back to the divine and the world of meaning and they ask to be forgiven. And the divine forgives them in the Quranic narrative. They are forgiven. And then gives them words to live by, to try to remember. And so the whole human being and our, our, our human family and our human condition is such that we're strapped with this trust of having to deal with our own selves. And the Quran says that the human being, that this trust was offered, Allah says in the Quran, that he offered this trust and he offered this human conditions to the heavens, to the skies, the heavens, offered it to the earth, offered it to the mountains, and that they all rejected it. And that the human being accepted it, and that the human beings do have the potential to be ignorant and to be oppressors. So the human being, in terms of the, the understanding, the spiritual understanding within that Quranic tradition, is that the human being is a soul, that life was brought about by the divine breathing the soul into the human being. And the, the soul is the thing that every human being has. And the Creator says, قَدْ كَرَمْنَا بَانِي Adam," That I have given a certain level of nobility to the entire tribe, to the entire human family. The entire tribe of that human archetype has a nobility. And that soul is the nobility. That every human being is a soul living inside of, of flesh. And every human being is also a heart. And that heart is what the human being uses to interpret and intuit the world. The heart is what keeps a person human, but the heart also has the ability to sway and to become uh, evil and to become corrupt. The heart can turn. And then the human being has an intellect. And so the, the intellect is what, how the uh, human beings interface on an intellectual level with the world of ideas. So there's going to be languages and frameworks and ideologies and ways of understanding. So all of these are part of what the human being is. And the human being also has an ego. And that ego is a tyrant that lives inside of every human being. And that ego is connected to a narcissistic view of self, a narcissistic view of its own identity that believes itself to be superior just because I'm me and believes its identity to be superior just because it's me. Never mind the world of vice and virtue, never mind what I do, never mind what my tribe does. We're always superior no matter what. So the soul, the heart, the intellect, and the ego, that's the human condition. That's the human condition. 
And the angels ask the question, isn't that going to cause a lot of trouble? And Allah says, I know what you don't know. So in this understanding, this whole thing, this whole creation that isn't forever, and we certainly know that all of us die in the material world, and we also know that when we die, our bodies die, but in the world of meaning, who we are, what we did, what we meant, what our impact was, what our intentions were, what our, what our, our soul was, that those things don't die. Those things go on. And so we lose our material self, but we do not lose our meaning. Our meaning never dies. And in a statement that was not in the Quran, but was given to the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, Allah says, the Creator says, I was a hidden treasure and I love to be known. And so I created the creation to know me. And so what our teachers tell us is that this project of the human being with the ability to forget can also be reminded. And that, that, rem that remembering is a rediscovery and a connection again with the divine. So some of the, the poets from this tradition will say that the entire story of the entire creation is a love letter between the divine creator and the creation. And that in that love story, you know, Allah is also given all, gives self all of these names, but also says Al-Wadud, the source of all love. And the creation is among Habib, means the beloved. And so this love affair between creator and creation is one that, like all love affairs, have highs and lows. And sometimes those lows are extremely low. And sometimes those highs are extremely high. But what some have understood to be the meaning of those extreme lows is that they create a situation where there can be a rediscovery a rediscovery of the source of love and of the source of meaning and of the source of virtue. But within that are all types of evil and all types of nightmares, the greatest of which is ingratitude, the greatest of which is to forget the world of meaning and to become completely self-absorbed and to be completely materialistic. And the way that that takes shape in a human being is through oppression in the Qur'anic narrative. The Qur'an describes oppression as being a type of deafness, dumbness, and blindness. And, and Allah says in the Qur'an, it's not the eyes that go blind, it's the heart that goes blind. That oppressor is the archetype of tyrant and oppressor is that it's a blindness in their heart. And when you see people who are tyrants and who are oppressors, they're completely blind to the truth. They can't see it. They can't see the humanity, the suffering that they're causing. They can't see themselves. They can't see what they're doing. They become deaf and they can't hear the truth. No matter what you say to them, they will not be convinced. And they have a type of inability to speak truth. So deafness, dumbness, blindness, they have an inability to see, to speak, but it's not talking about physical challenges. 
It's those things actually are symbols of what can happen in the heart. And Allah says, it's not the eyes that go blind, but the heart that goes blind of an oppressor to the point where an oppressor can even be blinded to the humanity of itself, just the reality of humanity. Oppressors and oppression and tyrants, they can't see humanity. They can't see their own and they can't see it in other people. Allah says that your creation and your resurrection are as one soul. Allah says if a person in the Quran, if a person takes an innocent life, it's as though they killed the whole human family. Humanity is one. The creator is one. And the, the reality of humanity is one. Humanity is a reality in and of itself. And so to take an innocent life, it's as though you're killing the whole human family in the world of meaning. And whoever saves a life, it's as though they save the entire world. And Allah says that oppression is worse than slaughter. The oppression, to oppress somebody is actually worse than slaughtering them, than killing them. Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said that Allah says, beware of the prayer of the oppressed. We're always encouraged to be and see and act on behalf of the oppressed and to align ourselves with the oppressed and to never align ourselves with the oppressors because oppression is part of the human condition. We, and, and we oppress ourselves. To oppress something means to, to not honor its right. And in the Quranic narrative, everything has a right and a truth. Truth and rights are utterly connected because the Creator creates everything with a certain relationship to the Creator. Everything has a certain value in the eyes of the creator. And so everything has a right that's related to its truth. And so in Islam, the human beings have rights. And each, each, each station and assignment within human beings have rights. So children have rights. Women have rights. Men have rights. Elders have rights. Students have rights. Teachers have rights. Prisoners have rights. Everyone has rights. Animals have rights. Water has rights. Air has rights. The sky has a right. Everything has a right that's based. And so to deny those rights is oppression, whether we're denying our own selves. And, and so often when we have the ability to, uh, to, to take what we want, what our egos want, even though we're wronging something, we do it. So I struggle with my weight. I talk about that a lot. Because ever since I started touring, I have the ability to eat whatever I want. And I like to eat things. My ego likes the taste of things and likes the feeling of things that are bad for my body if I eat them as often as I want to. So I'm in a constant battle of oppressing myself. And each of us are in a constant struggle with every gift that we've been given that we can oppress and all of us are struggling with the oppression of ourselves. And, and Allah says, through to, given as words to the Prophet Muhammad, not in the Quran, peace be upon him, but it says, beware of the prayer of the oppressed. There's no veil in between them and me when they're calling out to me. There's, not even, there's nothing in between the oppressed when it calls out to the Creator. And we're told that our, our limbs actually speak and say, she oppressed me, he oppressed me. 
when, when our tongues, when we make our tongues take somebody else's rights and slander them, lie about them, we oppress them. And we do have a time of accounting when our tongue will actually speak and say, this ego, this person forced me and oppressed me and made me speak things that I didn't want to speak. I wanted to speak beautiful, truthful words. And this person made, uh, used me in a way that I spoke harmful words, that I defiled people. He made, me talk, he made me talk ugly to his children, to his wife. She made me speak ugly about this person. So oppression is extremely real. And also the human beings oppress other human beings. And Allah says, beware of the prayer of the oppressed. Because when they call out to the divine, there's no filter, there's no sheet, there's no veil in between them. And Allah says, fierce is my wrath upon one who oppresses anyone, especially when that person has no ally other than me. There are people in this world that have nothing and have no one except for God in that moment. And when they call to God, there is no veil between them and God. And we might not see in, in, in a particular finite moment how that justice comes to be, but that justice has a right. The Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, help your brother or help your siblings in, in the Arabic language, the language of the Prophet Muhammad that he spoke. Brother also meant sister. Help your siblings, help your, help your people, whether they're the oppressor or whether they're the oppressed. And the people around the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, Messenger of Allah, we know how to help people when they're oppressed, but what can you possibly mean, help the people that are the oppressor? And the Prophet said, by stopping them from oppressing others, by giving them good advice, by reminding them of the truth, by appealing to them, by stopping them. And so the oppressed are our people. They're part of the human family, and so are the oppressors. And our role and our responsibility with them is different depending on who they are in that moment. Oppression goes in cycles. Oftentimes they say hurt people hurt people. So you look at someone that's, that's abusing their children, or abusing their spouses, or abusing their animals. And you say, what's wrong with you? How, like, this is evil, and it is evil. And oftentimes, if you were to go back into that person's past, you would find that somebody abused them. And that they're now carrying out that abuse. So when they were powerless, they were abused. And now they have some power over someone in some way. And now that cycle of oppression, that cycle of abuse, means that now they're carrying out the abuse that was done to them. And so we have a duty before the Creator, but in the world of meaning, regardless of what it does to our material reality, regardless of what it does to our reputation, to our business prospects, to the way that people relate to us, to our friends. We have ability to oppress and the oppressor. And the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, says both of them are your brother. Now, some, some of the scholars understood this to mean that Muslims can also be oppressors and they need to be stopped by other Muslims. But it also can mean within the human family, 
our brother, our sister, our co-human beings can be oppressors and oppressed. When they're oppressed, we know how to help them in any way we can. And when they're the oppressor, we speak the truth to them. We tell the truth to them, knowing that that truth may fall on deaf ears because oppression in itself is the result of hearts that have gone blind, deaf, and dumb. But our job is to do that. The Quran says that if a person is slain unjustly, if a person is unjustly killed, the people they leave behind, they do have the right to satisfaction, to justice. They can do that. But Allah says it's better for them to forgive. It's a human right to want justice for what's been done to you and to take vengeance. But Allah says in the Quran, don't take that vengeance to excess. Because then the excess, if you take your vengeance to excess, then that person becomes a victim. The Prophet Muhammad also said, you should love wisely because sometimes your friends can become enemies. And that's really real. And he also said, and also limit the way that you oppose the people that are your enemies right now because they might become your beloved friends. Just some reflections on justice. But here's the one that speaks to me and that's been honestly recognized all over the world. This is a verse in the Quran that is displayed prominently uh, in the halls of the Justice Department uh, in, uh, at Harvard because it's recognized to be such an incredible testament and guidance for human beings when it comes to justice. And this is, when I turned the mic on today, this is the one that I was most interested in sharing. Allah says in the Quran, what could be interpreted in the meaning, the, the Quran is the, the language of the Quran, which I'm not going to share here, but the meaning of that passage or that revelation could be interpreted this way. O oh, you who believe, stand out firmly for justice as witnesses before the divine. Stand out for justice as witnesses before God, even if it's against yourself or your ancestors or your tribe. Whether it's against people whether you're standing out for justice is against people who are rich and prestigious or poor and unknown. The divine is the one who's caring for both of them. And Allah says, don't allow and don't follow your own inclinations, your own prejudices, your own preferences and the desires of your hearts. Because if you follow them, they might make you swerve and they might make you miss the mark of guidance, of judge, of justice. And if you decline to do justice or if you distort justice, Allah is well acquainted with what you do. So looking at each part of that, Allah says, O you who believe, stand out firmly for justices as witnesses before the divine. Ultimately, the divine is aware of all things. And ultimately, we're relating to the divine world of meaning. And so this is, this is going to be perceived differently 
people have their own narratives about history, about current events, and what they want for the future. Every individual has those narratives. Every group of people has those narratives. That's also part of being human. We're making meaning out of what we're perceiving and what we're experiencing. We are all making meaning out of that. And everybody has their own account. But what we all must remember, they say there's two sides of every story, my side, your side, and the truth. Well, the truth would be understood in this framing to be the divine. The creator, Allah, is perceiving everything. And Allah is not given to inclinations and prejudices, but Allah is seeing things as they are in the ultimate sense and in the ultimate reality. And that's a vision and an understanding that's divine that none of us are fully capable of. So Allah says, stand out firmly for justice as witnesses for the divine, for God, for Allah, for the world of meaning. Even if it's against yourself and your parents, which can also mean to be understood as your ancestors and your family, your kin, your tribe. A lot of times this is what's needed. This is where we struggle when it comes time to tell the truth and to stand out for justice. We, we love to talk about justice when it's in our favor. This is part of the human condition. We have a very hard time as part of what we are and who we are telling the truth against ourselves and against our ancestors and against our tribe. But that's what the divine is encouraging us to do. Self-critique when it's time to do that. It's easy to beat the drums for your, for your own interests. It's easy to ride for your own identity. It's easy to ride for your own cause. It's easy to ride for people who can help you who your interests align with. It's easy to ride for those people. Allah says, tell the truth, whether it's against people that are rich and prestigious or if it's against people that are poor, unknown. A lot of times we stand up for people that are prestigious, but we don't want to stand up. We lose track of justice completely when it comes to people who are unknown, who are poor, who are outsiders, who are on the margins, who are pariahs, who are on the fringes. Who, don't, who aren't central to the story and to the narrative. And Allah says, don't follow your own inclinations, your own desires, your own preferences, your own prejudices. This is the creator of the human being saying, you have those. You have inclinations. You have prejudices. Everybody does. Everybody's got biases. Everybody's got, because in this kind of human chess match and and. Uh, you know, struggle and constant bumping into one another, there are people that I'm going to incline towards. The people that I've had certain experiences with, I'm going to incline towards them. It's a lie to say that I am completely without biases and prejudices and preferences and desires and just likes. There are, pe- there are, there are certain people and causes and styles and there's certain stuff I'm going to like. And Allah says, don't follow those things when it's time to talk about justice. Because that's going to make you swerve and that's going to make you miss the mark. This is part of your humanity, that you can swerve and you can miss the mark when it comes time for justice. And Allah says, if you distort justice or avoid doing justice, 
So there's times we can distort it and there's times where we can just decline to do it completely. Allah is well acquainted with all, everything that you do. So I'm a person that's, that's a part of my life. And I think all good people, we want to be about justice. And so my relationship with this stuff is really based on, and I hope to frame it, my desire, my intention is to always frame it through that lens of what I just mentioned. And that's in the verse in the Quran, the fourth uh, chapter of the Quran, which is named for women. So I'm a person that was born to European-American parents. My parents, and, and as far as I can tell, my ancestors are European-American. My mother was adopted. My father's family had all kinds of stories and narratives about where we might be from. I took a, I took a DNA test. It said mostly, uh, it said European uh, with a lot of English. I'm also an albino, and my family also had a certain degree of dysfunction. And so I've described, if you go to the first episode of this podcast called The Opening, I tell a lot of the stories about my life. And so, and, and with albinism, I was made to feel like an outsider. My mother had a certain ways of trying to deal with that that felt like they hurt me more. And there were also black elders and peers in my life that understood me. And it felt to me at a young age, six, seven years or five, six, seven years old, like they were understanding me like I was human with them. I didn't feel human amongst other people that were called white. I felt human when I was among people that were black. And there's a lot of reasons for that. There's a lot of misunderstanding about albinism. A lot of people think all albinos are black, and a lot of people that think that are white, and a lot of people that think that are black. The truth is that there's albinos in all groups of people. So from the time that I was really young, I had this feeling of being safe, being human, with black elders, peers, lovers, even the people that I beefed with. All the important people in my life were black, but my family was white. And I had experience after experience about being in between these two worlds. And one of the main ways that I can really illustrate this is that I became a Muslim uh, in a black American Muslim community and in the inner city. And I married, when I was 17, I married a black woman, young black woman, girl, woman. We were children kind of at that time. I married a woman from Gary who had moved to Minnesota to try to have a new life. We got married. She was also Muslim. We got married. Her parents came there. And we, I, I was part of that family during the... And we were married for almost 10 years. We had a son together. I was with my in-laws, my mother and father-in-law, and my wife. After coming back from the mosque, we went to go grocery shopping. And we had our baby son with us. Me and my father-in-law stayed in the car. And it was maybe 10 o'clock at night. This, this meeting went till 10 o'clock at night. None of us had anywhere to be in the morning. And so we decided to go grocery shopping at the 24-hour grocery store. We were sitting there, me and my father-in-law in the car, our wives and my son, who's a baby in a stroller, 
are in the store shopping and they like to shop for a long time. It was fun for them. They like to shop. They would go in there and kick it and bond. Me and my father-in-law are kicking it too. And I had so many great experiences with him. And we were sitting there in the car and we're listening to the radio and, you know, we got suits on. We felt good. We felt cool. It's wintertime in Minnesota. Suddenly a big spotlight comes on the car and there's police yelling at us, put your, throw the keys out the window, uh, not approaching the car and speaking to us, but immediately talking to us like we were dangerous suspects to be treated as suspects. We were yelled at, throw the keys out of the car, get out. We had to get out of the car. We had to walk back towards them. We had to get on our knees and then lay down in the cold, snowy parking lot. And they rushed us and they climbed on us and they stomped on us and they squeezed us and violated us and searched every part of our bodies. Uh, with my head was on the concrete with a knees on my back, knees on my head, knees on my shoulders. There were several cars and several officers and they searched us and then they searched and they were cursing at us. They were screaming at us. They were asking, Where's the, where, where are the guns? Not, do you have guns? Where are the guns? And their guns were drawn and pointed at us, and big lights were pointed at us. And they looked all through the car. They looked underneath the car. And then finally, when they didn't find anything, they pulled us up. Our hands were zip-tied. My wrists were, had been cut by the zip-ties. And I was bleeding, and I had scrape marks. And my father-in-law, there was a, a black man in his late 60s at this time, is just looking at me and saying, be quiet, don't get us killed. Be quiet, don't get us killed. So we're just quiet. And they finally picked us up and they, they said, uh, we got a call from somebody here that there were two black men in a Cadillac that were sitting there and plotting to rob the bank branch inside the store. It was, you know, these stores had like a a little bank branch inside where you could cash your check and things like that, that you guys had guns, they saw guns, and you guys were about to rob the store. So you understand, we just had to check it out. They put us back in the car and drove away. Now, the whole time I'm thinking to myself, while wow, we're on the ground with lights and, a, and cops and guns treating us like we're dangerous, I'm thinking to myself, please don't let the women come out of the store because they're going to have the natural reaction that a, uh, that a woman, that people, human beings would have to seeing their husband, their father, their son-in-law on the ground being treated and being threatened with weapons and helpless. They're going to ha and that reaction might cause these cops to start hurting people. And what if they had the norm, the very normal reaction of seeing someone threatening the life of your loved ones when they didn't do anything wrong? A natural inclination might be to run and try to put your hands on them and to try to stop them from threatening and hurting and maybe even killing your loved ones. Some people in their human uh, a nervous system, and just in the way that they're constructed, they might do that. Some people are composed like that. And a lot of times we celebrate people that are that way. They say, well, like they stood up and put their hands on the situation and did something about it. But in that case, to respond that way would probably have meant the death of somebody in my family or me. 
and my son is there in a, in a stroller. So they put us in the car and they say, somebody said you guys were loading, were loading guns and about to rob the store. No apology, nothing. They just drove away. This is in the early 2000s, before there's Black Lives Matter, before there's cell phone cameras. And I, I grew up hearing and knowing the stories and in a lot of cases witnessing them of police harassment, police violence, of police officers killing people who were not threatening them. Or in some cases felt like they were trying to defend themselves from police that were antagonizing them and threatening them with weapons and, and, and had the ability to use deadly force backed by the state. And it turns out that what had happened is that some people saw us in the car and were uncomfortable by us sitting in the car, listening to music, laughing, the car running. There were no guns. We were wearing suits. Not that you have to wear a suit to be a person, but we were wearing suits. We we're just waiting for our wives and, our, and, a, and a baby in the store who are shopping for groceries, doing what you're supposed to do in that situation. But they were scared. And so instead of call the police and say, hey, there's black men here, I'm scared. By the way, I'm still the same European American person that I've always been. And not only that, am I, am I like legally considered white, but, I'm, but I also am albino, I'm the lightest light person. But they didn't see me that way. They reported two black men in a car with guns about to rob the store. So they said that just us being there, that they felt threatened by our very presence there to the point that they told the authorities that their lives were in danger. The authorities showed up and endangered our lives and, did, and felt zero need to apologize, to explain themselves, to be accountable, or to find out who lied to the police. There was no need to do that. We were suspects until it was proven that we weren't. That we, weren't. we were in danger until it was proven that somebody else lied. It's a crime to, to make a false call against the police. And so they just drove away. And there we are sitting there now soaking wet in our suits. And I start trembling because we almost just, we could have just died. I was just basically held up at gunpoint by representatives of the state who, if they kill me, the burden of proof is on somebody to prove that they were wrong. And we just see time and time again, they, they just go free. My father-in-law is in his 60s, late 60s. He's a black man. He had been through this so many times that it, wasn't, it, it had become normal to him. This man died of a heart attack. And I just remember thinking to myself, as bad as I feel right now, why is it that I'm shaking and I'm angry and I'm scared? And he just went right back to life because he's just happy he didn't die in front of his wife, daughter, uh, and, and grandchild. That's, that's his re relationship with all of this. I had another situation with where my wife and I moved in with my mother. We had a baby, and it was a tough situation between us. We argued. And this was near the, I didn't know it, but this was near the end of my, my mom's life. And it, it's probably the saddest chapter of my life. And at one point, we, we had scheduled to move out. We had just had our baby. We was down on my luck and had to move back in. I moved out of my mother's house when I was, 20, when I was 17 and got married. 
had to move back in at 22 because I had a baby. And um, some stuff happened. I didn't have a job, didn't have a place to live. I messed up. So I had to move back in with my mom for a couple months, get back on my feet. She took us in, but there, there was always a lot of tension between me and my wife and my mom. And I hate the way that I responded in that whole situation. Try to have some grace for myself because I was a kid and I was trying to do something good and I was up against all kind of stuff, but I didn't respond right. So my mother, in the midst of all this, kicks us out in, in, in the night. She said, you guys got to get out right now because we're arguing. I said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Well, you know, we'll go. We'll stay out of your way. I have an apartment lined up in two weeks. I'm not about to go be homeless because we're not getting along. We'll just stay out of your way. So she says, you're getting out of here. And she called the police. So the police show up being called by my white mom. So now the police walk in and they know I'm white. And my mom told them also that we had weapons. We didn't have weapons. And they came in and they sat and talked to me. And they said, you know, we, I don't think you did anything. I don't, I don't think that you have done anything that, that really gives us the, the reason to remove you and a baby and your wife from the house. But man, you, you got you to gotta figure this thing out. If you can't live here peacefully, you got to figure out a place to go. So it's a very different relationship that's very similar. You know, normal family dispute. There was no violence. There was nothing like that. There was no abuse going on. But my wife, my mom, Allah have mercy on her. She said we ha I had a gun so that the police would take it more seriously. But when they came in this time, they knew that I was white. So I have had the experience in my body related to my safety of knowing what it's like when the police think you're white and the when the police think you're not white. When the police thought I was white, I was a human being. And it was in full understanding that I'm having a completely human experience where, where there's all kind of complexities and, but clearly something isn't going wrong, but there's probably reason to believe that everybody here is probably a human being. And there's no reason to do anything drastic. And so what about the fact my mom said we had guns? The police didn't even look for guns. This is also in, in, a, in a suburb in Minneapolis. And they didn't even look for guns. Whereas when the police thought that I was black, I was in danger of losing my life. I know that feeling. And that's not the only time that I've had both of those experiences. I've had experiences where people thought I was black. And police thought I was black. I had a police pull a gun on me, taking the garbage out. And he call, I heard him call it in. I was taking out the garbage. I heard him call it in. Six foot black male, 250 pounds. I know what that is. So I, I know something about that, and it's in my body, and I have a certain worldview. And what I've come to understand is that there is a reality in the world of, a, of a, a tribal sense. There are different narratives and framings and identities and cognitive frames, ways of seeing and being in the world, and ways that people identify themselves and define themselves. And those things have changed over the course of, the, of, of human history. There have been times that people have always had tribes. 
But there were times where your tribe was everything. And there were times where people had, where, where religion was more prominent. There's always been religion. But there was times where your religion was everything. And there have always been racial categories. But in the modern age, the racial category has become the defining reality. It doesn't mean that there aren't others. So people who are poor have a very real thing going on with the rich. People who have different identities. There are all sorts of struggles going on. But what I see in global politics, in the global dynamics of how the world is spread out, how the world is governed, what I see, and again, this is coming from somebody who's not only the descendant of Europeans, but albino. I spent some time with Dave Chappelle, and we love each other. And he, when he's joking about me, and actually he's saying it lovingly, but he says, Ali is the whitest of all the whites, <laughs> a white albino. But he's a Muslim, and he just says beautiful things about me. And I would say beautiful things about him. But this is me looking at the, at the lens of the Quran that says, tell the truth even if it's against yourself, even if it's against your ancestors, your parents, even if it's against your tribe and your kin. Tell the truth. And the, the framing of the modern world is one of white supremacist colonialism. The idea, and that's become the religion of the day. And it separates the world into two groups, and three in some ways. In one way, it separates the world into two groups. The first one are full human beings who are entitled to nuance and understanding and all of the things that come, the, the benefit of the doubt, everything that comes along with being a full human being, having a human experience, a person that is has a soul and a heart and an intellect and an ego and needs, and sometimes they mess up, but that doesn't define who they are. They're a full human being. And then there are other peoples who are less than human. And those human beings, their only value, the non-whites in, in, the, in the lens, in the way of seeing and being in the world, in the religion, the modern religion of white supremacist colonialism, these two things, these things go together, the white supremacy and the colonialism, the idea that white people have the complete, the people who are called white have the complete right to live anywhere in the world, to be the dominators anywhere in the world, to be the ones who set the tone, who set the agenda, who make the decisions about what's good and bad and evil and everything else, that those people are fully human. And then the others, anyone who's an other their only value is in serving. That's the only time they can have value is if they're serving. So if they're serving the full human beings, if they're serving the white colonial ones that are seen as fully human. Otherwise, if, if, if the non-white people aren't serving, they're either ignored and they're expected to be completely, they'll be ignored and their suffering and their oppression will be necessary. And they'll be left alone to suffer and be impressed for their entire human earthly existence 
unless they try to resist and impose the colonial project. And then in that case, then they become enemy combatants who need to be eliminated. So they're never fully human. They're good if they serve, but only as servants. They're ignored if they just accept their their subhuman status. And if they resist it in any meaningful way, then they have to be eliminated. And I also recognize, and also what I see, and I'm not a politician, I'm not a pundit, I'm not a scholar of Islam. You know me because I make rap music, but the reason people care about my rap music is because I'm a human being that speaks from the heart. And that's what I'm doing here. And as I speak from the heart in a way that feels as true to me as possible, because in my mind, in my heart, I'm witnessing to God. And sometimes that people love me for it, and sometimes people have called me every name under the sun and have done all sorts of things to try to harm me and, and, and under, underneath that. The, another observation that I have is that in that world of white supremacist colonialism, there are people who are white, but the white people, you can't be white on your own. Now, when I say white, I'm not talking about European people. I have a song called Before They Called You White, and the reality is that whiteness hasn't always been a a, a worldview, an identity, a way of seeing and being in the world and somebody's chief identity in the world. And the idea of of what these different color dynamics and what they might mean to people about people shifted a lot throughout time. So I'm not talking about people that, that descend from Europe. I'm talking about a way of being in the world, a way of seeing the world, a way of one's bodies responding to colonial power and, and violence, a way of responding. How does my body respond when I see oppression or resistance to oppression? How do I filter that? How does my body respond to that? So when I talk about whiteness, I'm not talking about a European person. I'm not condemning them for the fact that, they, that, that any person comes from a particular lineage or, or that anybody's skin is a particular color. I'm talking about a way of being in the world that's connected to, to global domination, that's, collect, that's connected to enormous systems and governments that are dominant in the world. And it's impossible to be for the for the the category of white to exist. That's that's the shining example and default for what the most human is. It's got to have an opposite, which is black. And black people, or whatever that opposite is, is seen as a complete opposite. They have to be binaries. They got to be opposite binaries. But then in between, you got buffers. You got buffer people who keep those two worlds in place. And those buffer people are, are seen as non-white people of color or just as non-white, but they're not necessarily black. I'm sorry, non-black people of color. So they're not black, but they're also not white. They're somewhere in between. And those people's job is to keep black at one end of the spectrum, the spectrum or to keep whatever the opposite of white is at the other end of the spectrum. And it's there. So by doing so, they keep black, black, and they keep white, white. The people that are in the middle. And there are certain times that whiteness, the idea of like who is white, has excluded some people and then included them later. So, uh, you know, when, when Italians, for example, came to America, they weren't really white. 
They weren't really part of whiteness. They were seen as some sort of Mediterranean, olive skin, Catholic, you know, they weren't, they weren't Protestant white. They were seen, they were, they, they weren't seen as they weren't white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, which was the most white of the whites. They weren't seen as part of that. And, and the same with Irish people. And Irish people in with relationship to your, to England weren't seen as white, and they were oppressed. But then the, there was an expansion of whiteness, and those people became white. And they're not the only ones that over time became white and became, uh, or at least with an extreme proximity to whiteness that makes them almost white. And that a lot of times in this way, there are, again, these cycles of oppression. People who experience oppression and as individuals, as families, as groups, as countries, as entire global diasporas, we can experience oppression and then we can oppress. And most of the people who oppress and abuse, if you look in their history, there's oppression and abuse that's happened to them. And a lot of times they're carrying out something that has been done to them. So in this world of white supremacist colonialism, that colonialism just becomes normal for non-white people to suffer and to be invaded and to be colonized is just the norm. We don't even question it. I live in Istanbul now, but I'm from America. And in America, it's so normal. All of these treaties that were broken, all of the massacres that happened, you know, when, when European people who were oppressed in Europe those white Anglo-Saxon Protestants felt oppressed in Europe, and they were oppressed in Europe. Resma Minikim, who's a great uh, expert on racialized trauma, says everything that white people did to non-white people in America was first done to them by other white people in Europe. They had an experience where they were being, and he said, you know, look at the idea of that phrase that says, I'm going to go medieval on you. What does that mean? That's when white people were doing to less white people people who didn't own land or whatever the opposite other was in that scenario. They were far tarring and feathering them. They were castrating them. They were hanging them. They were raping them. They were stealing their children. They were doing all sorts of things to them. So they came because they were fleeing oppression. And they had an idea, this white supremacist colonial idea, that we're going to go and we're going to get it right in this other place. And they had a belief of manifest destiny where they believed that God gave them this necessary goal of creating a haven for themselves. And so they made a constitution. They did all the things that we now call American history. They wrote a constitution that says all human beings are created equal. It's going to be freedom, justice, equality. But they also had slaves. And they were enslaving African people. And they, and they, they wrote into the constitution itself that enslaved Africans are three-fifths of a human being. And then they had to have amendments to that constitution that dealt specifically with uh, black descendants of Africa who were formerly enslaved and introduced into that system via system of slavery. They also had white indentured servants 
and they had a, a, a rebellion, when they talk about Bacon's rebellion, where white indentured servants and, and uh, black enslaved Africans were working together. And so there were new laws created to create a class called white. And so in that system, these people made, uh, came to this country, came to America, what they call America, to North America, to Turtle Island. They came to that place with the idea like, we're going to make something beautiful for ourselves. It's going to be beautiful. But the problem is there were people there. And so some of, the, some of them, they, they tried, well, can we share this space with the people? Okay, well, we have to dominate them, obviously. Otherwise, this can't be the, the, our home. And so they, they ran them off their land, land that they had been living on and, and communing with and raising their children on and making meaning with and land that they, and they, they pushed them off that, their land. They ran them off their land. And during that time, there were native people, First Nations people, some that some call Indians and some call themselves Indians. They, they, they did everything under the sun to resist they had talks, they had meetings, they fed people, they, they clothed them, they housed them, they taught them how to live in that cold North American environment. They made treaties with them, they had talks with them, they asked them, they petitioned them, they protested, and some of them fought back, and, so, and some of them killed settlers because they saw those settlers as the weapon. Your settling here in America is the weapon. And so some of them killed the settlers. They did that. And that was seen as a provocation by, this, by these European settlers that I descend from. And so they used that as an opportunity and as a justification to commit genocide on these people. Again, stand out for truth, stand out for justice as a Witness before God, even if it's against yourself, your ancestors, your tribe. That's what I'm doing right now. And so they committed genocide. And it's become just normal to live on that land without even knowing, without even the memory of who those people are. Not knowing a word of their language, not knowing anything about their history and their humanity and their heroes and their poems and their stories and their songs and their language and their literature, not knowing anything about them for people to sell each other the land and to not have any even memory of that. It just becomes normal for non-white people to suffer, to be invaded, to be colonized. They have no human rights because they're not human. They have to, those non-white people who are being colonized have to earn their safety because they're not seen as human. They got to earn their shelter. They got to earn their health care. They got to earn the, the things that are human. Not to mention earning the ability to just have some sovereignty and some say over how their lives are lived. White supremacist co colonialism sees oppression and violence as necessary Violent, violent oppression is necessary under that worldview. It can't exist without it. Violence is its specialty. Violence is its brand. Violence is its calling card. This is a, a way of being in the world that has used every science and technology to develop the most inhumane weaponry and ways of delivering and visiting horrific death on other human beings that the world has ever known. 
And the last hundred years has been the most deadly hundred years under this system, regardless of what regardless of how the people identify within it, regardless of what their religion is, regardless of what their politics are, regardless of even if it's a, a, a secular project. White supremacist colonialism has been the most deadly thing to ever happen to human beings. They celebrate death and destruction. Their monuments are to people that killed others. They celebrate it. It's a key element of the, the religion, the, 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 the dogmatic approach of white supremacist colonialism. And then they accuse other people of being violent. They, they accuse the less human people. They lose all their humanity if they resist in any way that's actually effective. They basically become like, they basically become like uh, 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 insects. Pests. Most of the pests, you know what I'm saying? Think about how often human beings, with these big human beings, we got these little bugs, they bother us. We don't like them being in our homes. And so we kill them and we run them off. We have no respect for them. There's a, there's a bug on us. How often is a spider in our house, whatever? How often do we pick them up and carry them outside and set them free? We usually just smack them and kill them. But we got a different respect when there's a bee around. And not because the bee makes honey, that's a, that's a medicine, a natural medicine. Not because the bee pollinates all of the vegetation. Not because the bee has a beautiful reality that really is necessary for our interdependence with the ecosystem. Not because of that. We don't respect the bee because we risk. Now, of course, there's beekeepers, but I'm talking about the average person just kills insects. But when the bee comes around, there's a different posture with that bee. Suddenly that, that big, you know, that big strong person that can just smack mosquitoes and flies and just clap them and not even think about it. Suddenly you got a different type of respect. Why? Just because the bee has that little stinger. And in order for the bee to use that stinger, the bee has to die. And so the bee only uses that stinger if it's being threatened. If the bee is allowed to live, he doesn't want to, she, 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 the bees don't want to use their stinger. They're going to die doing that. They only do that when it's necessary to defend from this much bigger, more powerful thing. So the, 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 the oppressors expect to live untouched by the fear that they create and visit for generations and other people. They create fear. They force people to live under constant terror and fear of harm. And if that fear is ever visited on them, it, just, it, it, it means that now this is, these people need to be eliminated. And you see this over and over and over again. This is what happened in the, the, the place that I call home, where I pay taxes, where I have citizenship, where I bought me and my family bought a house, this is what happened. The non-white people, the, not, the, the, the oppressed people, the only way you, you can either serve us happily and then you might gain some, some, some uh, relationship with whiteness or you can just be quietly subservient. But if you resist in any way that matters, any way that we feel, 
And oftentimes colonial white supremacy, white supremacist colonialism, it only respects violence. It's the language that it respects. It's an incredibly dehumanizing way to be in the world. And so when people oppose it, it was when people who are called white oppose it, there's this feeling of like, well, why wouldn't you want to be white? Why wouldn't you want this? Doesn't it mean you're going to lose something? And I'm saying that I've referenced this before, but I got a friend who's a white Muslim from Mississippi who lives in North Carolina now, Shane Atkinson, who speaks as a Muslim against white supremacy. And he, as do I and a lot of other people, believe they see Islam, we see Islam as a, re-human, as a rehumanizing process. And so somebody asked him, why would, why, how could you convince white people to give up, their, give up their privilege, their material privilege? And Shane says to regain the soul because a human being is a soul. And so Shane is, is living by, and many others are living by this mode of help your brother, whether they're the oppressor or the oppressed. And to tell the truth to the oppressor and also recognizing that they, they may have, in, in other circumstances, be oppressed. But in this scenario, if people resist in a, in a way that says that you're going to experience some of the fear that you've caused us to live with, which comes through violence. And of course, killing innocent human beings is wrong, always, always. I don't use the language of international law. and the hum- I'm saying I'm a Muslim. I believe in the Sharia. That's my moral code. And the Sharia says that any killing of innocent life is wrong. It's, it's forbidden. The Quran speaks against the killing of innocent life. To kill one innocent person is like you've killed all of humanity. To save a life as though you've saved all of humanity. But the, the thing about this white supremacist colonial kind of like view of life is that when people who are not part of the dominant group the fully, the ones that are fully human, there's no even acknowledgement when they're being killed. There's no outcry. It's not felt. The only time their pain is felt is when they return it. And at, and at that point, then it's time to eliminate them because those are the only three options. You can either be happy and useful while you're being oppressed, or you can be silent and accept it. Or if you resist in any way that actually bothers us, then we have to eliminate you. And that's when we have genocide. It's a spiritual sickness that arranges right and wrong based on what your identity is and not based on the world of meaning or anything divine. And you oppose it even if it's to oppose it. Anybody that opposes it, even from within, is like a type of betrayal like to, to, to tell the truth and be, even if you're an insider, is a betrayal. So to, to be in the oppressed group is physically, is violent on every level, is dangerous on every level. Your physical life, your mental health, your well-being, your sense of self, your, your memory of yourself, everything. And then to be a part of the group that's seen as fully human, but, but not be in alignment with that, 
there's another type of like social danger that comes along with that. It's not, it's, it's usually not a physical danger, but it is sometimes. Sometimes it's even a physical danger. And there are people that have lost their life. And if you go to Germany, you'll notice that they say that was, most of our country just went along with this. But there, are, there were Germans who told the truth. And they were imprisoned and some of them were killed. And they make shrines in their churches to the Germans who stood up because there weren't a lot of them. And at the time, it was socially and even maybe physically dangerous. But think about when 9-11 happened. 3,000 people were killed. And people started beating the war drums. And they made false accusations, which are usually part of it, which are usually part of this whole process that leads into an attempted genocide. So in 9-11, they said, these two, we're going to go attack other countries that don't have anything in common with the people that attacked them, did the attack in 9-11. The only thing they have, they don't speak the same language, even all of them. They're not from the same country. They don't have the same, you know, but they're just, they're all Muslim and they're all brown. So America went to two other countries and over a million people died in response to that 3,000. Over a million people. A million people. That's a thousand thousands. So 3,000 people died in 9-11. A million people died as, as a response. And then it turned out that some of the claims that were made about why this needed to happen were just untrue. We killed a million people, a million human beings. And the people that stood up against it, even from within, they were called terrorists. They were canceled. They were surveilled, harassed by the government. Some of them were imprisoned. Some of them went to Guantanamo Bay. They were fired from their jobs. They were called all sorts of names. And so not only do I have this, but also in this particular case, Jews and Palestinians are human to me. And they've been that way for a long time. So I have Palestinian, Palestinian humanity is very real to me. I'm not, this is not one of those things you say, some of my best friends are Palestinian. But I'm saying I talk a lot about the fact that so much of my life as, a, as an adult is connected through this one particular amazing organizer named Rami Neshashibi, who is a, an incredible organizer in the south side of Chicago. He's Palestinian-American. I'm saying he introduced me to my religious teachers. The last time I was with my first religious teacher, leader, I, w I was, was because of him. Uh, some of my greatest friends, uh, so much of my life and identity as an adult come through this person. And, he's, and he, he's one of the greatest humanitarians that I've ever known. And he's a real, a real person of the people. He is an artist. And it's not just him, but I mean countless Palestinian friends that I know as artists, as fellow artists, as journalists, and people that I share religion with, great teachers. And I'm also connected to Jewish people and to Judaism, also because I'm in the music industry. And I don't, I don't mean this is in any kind of like funny ass, like stereotypical way, but a lot of the people I do business with are Jews. And they're, and they're the type of Jews who are against oppression and they're outspoken. 
and I'm not going to say their names because if, if I'm saying something that's going to make somebody accuse me of something, I'm, they don't need to be connected to it. But they know who they are. I've always had Jewish friends and artists, but also in a religious sense, Muslims love Judaism. Like our religions are so related to each other. Like my family is an Orthodox Muslim family. We only eat halal meat, but we also eat kosher meat, which is a big deal for my family. Most of what we ate, and it's because of the fact that religious Jewish people keep their covenants that are so similar to uh, the code that Muslims strive to live by. So there's a very deep connection there. Every time the Muslims pray, like I believe, we Muslims believe that Judaism is a valid religion from God and that God made, uh, sent prophets to them. Some of the most important prophets came to them and has a relationship with them as a group of people. And Allah says in the Quran, Allah, Allah has his critiques for every group, the Muslims and everybody else. But Allah says, you need to know that among the Jews are true believers and that they do good, they believe and they believe they do good, and that they have their reward with their Lord. So Jews got a thing with Allah that I that I just honor. And along with that, part of what Muslims are proud of in our own so I'm sorry, but when we pray, every time the Muslims pray, do we do our five daily prayers? That prayer comes with a prayer that Allah have, have blessed the Prophet Muhammad and the family of the Prophet Muhammad and blessed the family of Abraham and the family of Abraham, meaning all of those tribes and those prophets, those messengers, all of those people, including the, 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 the Israeli people now. They're part of our prayer. My face touches the floor. I do 17 units of prayer every single day when I'm, when I'm being good. Don't let me don't have me up here lying now. But when I'm praying all my prayers, five prayers a day, 17 times. And each one of those five prayers includes a prayer for all of the people of Abraham. And it's part of our religion. And we take pride as a group of people that when that, that protected the Jews when it was Christians that were oppressing them. And we know these stories. And these stories are important to us and we take pride in them. When Omar, when the Khalifa Omar uh, went to Jerusalem, he went in there and he said, and, and, and the, the Muslims were uh, becoming the governors of Jerusalem. He looked and he said to the Christians, the Catholics that were there at that time, how come there aren't any Jews here? Where are the Jews? And they said, oh, you know, we expelled them. We pushed them out. And Omar says, there can't be a Jerusalem without Jews. There's got to be Jews in Jerusalem. They're connected to prophets that connect them to this land. And so Omar was, a, was a, a great, impressive figure that the Muslims love. And so he ordered for hundreds of Jewish families to be invited and, and resettled in Jerusalem. This is history that we're proud of. This is history that we're taught and we're proud of. I live in Istanbul and I visit the grave and the mosque of Bayezid, the sultan one of the sultans of the Ottomans. And so the, the Muslims lost the governorship of, of Jerusalem and then they got it back. And again, they found that this time, the people that were the, the conquistadors, the, the crusaders, they found that they had also expelled the Jews. They said, where are the Jews? And so Bayezid 
when the Jews were expelled, when Muslims and Jews were being expelled from Europe and were going through the Inquisition. And there was a, a, an official statement made that the Jews have to either convert or leave. Bayezid, the sultan uh, uh, here in, in, in Istanbul, he made a law saying that we will accept any Jews that come from any part of the world. And they have to be full citizens. You can't deny them a place to live. You have to employ them. You have to do business with them. And in most places where the Muslims were the custodians of the land, but there were Jews there, Jewish people went to Jewish courts. I don't mean to romanticize this like there was nothing bad that ever happened. There were also horrible things that happened. But the idea that, that Islam and Judaism are enemies, I'm sorry, it's just not true. It's just not true. Part of what we celebrate, and then Bayezid, the sultan of, of the Ottoman Empire, wrote a letter to, to, to the leaders of Europe and said, you've expelled the Jews, you have deprived yourself, you've impoverished yourself, and you've enriched us. And to this day, all over the Muslim world, where the Muslims were the governors, there are Jewish worship places of worship, there are Jewish communities that go back through that entire time. Again, it wasn't perfect. But there are, there's plenty of history of the Muslims protecting Jews because of the fact that there are people that we are religion, but it's part of our religion to recognize them. It's part of our religion to recognize the validity of their scripture. Now, th th we differ also. We believe that their scripture, that we believe that other scriptures of the world have been, have, have been changed by people. We differ also. We're not the same religion. But the, the, the verse in the Quran says, oh, the people who, who aren't Muslim, you're, you don't believe what we believe and we don't believe exactly what you believe. And you're not going to believe what we believe and we're not going to believe what you believe. So you have your religion and we have ours. And so that's an, that's an important part of my experience of being a Muslim. And to keep track of Palestinian humanity is not anti-Semitism. Because first of all, the Palestinians are also Semitic people. Second of all, colonialism, oppression, killing and starving people and committing genocide, none of those are tenets of Judaism. I know something about Judaism. I, did, I used to be an imam at a mosque and I did a lot of interfaith work. And those are not tenets of Judaism. Those, those are, those, they are tenets of white supremacist colonialism. So when I got a critique, it's going to be against the group of people that I'm political. If I got a political critique, it's against the people that I am politically connected to. Politically, I'm a citizen of the United States, and I'm connected to a political group of white people. That's my political lineage. And so that's where my political critique is going to be. And in my assessment of the world, this is what I see. So this is me speaking from the heart. It's not anti-Semitism to keep track of the humanitarian of of the humanity of Palestinian people. And another thing that I have to say about Jewish people, and this is an obs an observation, and I hope it's heard with the what I the the spirit that I intended. I have found them out of all of the people who are considered white to be the best at speaking truth to power from within. They're the, I've found them personally from my own observation. 
the countless Jewish voices, talking about everybody from rabbis and religious authorities to artists to community leaders to content creators to everybody involved. I have found Jewish people of all of the people that I look as a person that like I, you know, politically I'm included in the idea in the, in the political group of white. And I'm somebody who attempts to critique from within in that sense. And I see nobody as good at it as them. And though, I mean, and, and those, and those people, when they talk about it, when they talk about their truth speaking, they're fearful of being called anti-Semitic, and they are called that from, from some people. And so there's nothing anti-Semitic, and, and if anybody has any kind of feelings of denying the pain that Jewish people have been through historically, you get no help from me on that. You get no help from me on that. Because we, we acknowledge oppression as an evil in and of itself. And so the people that are, that are keeping track of Palestinian humanity is because of the fact that it's so imbalanced. It's so incredibly imbalanced. You have the superpowers of the world. And I'm in, I, I pay taxes in America, even though I haven't lived in that country for three years. I still pay full income tax to the United States, and there's no way for me to get out of it. I hear that there are people that buy their way out and it costs millions of dollars that I do not have and I might never have. I pay taxes to the United States government and my government that I pay taxes to spends trillions of dollars. And so this is, it's, it's, it's a keeping track of humanity. There's a lot that I can say, and no matter how much I say, there's something that I'll leave out. And no matter how good my intentions are, there's short-sightedness on my part because I, I'm dealing with that human condition just like everybody else. So if you recognize an oversight or a mistake or something of that nature, I ask that you have grace. But my intention is always to stand out for justice as a witness before the divine, even if it's against ourselves, even if it's against our ancestors, even if there's pain that we have and that, that our pain isn't any less. It never justifies being inhumane to other people. So we ask Allah to make us fully human. And the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, re related the words of Allah that said, beware of the prayer of the oppressed, because there's no veil in between the oppressed and when they're speaking and calling out to Allah. And Allah said, be careful of the judgment, of the, of the vengeance for people who call out when their only ally is the divine. So in that case, we think about all people who are being wronged and who are voiceless and nameless in all, in all cases. And we want to always, in our hearts and in our minds, and we always want to identify with them 
We always want to serve them. We always want to be useful to that, to the cause of justice, regardless of who the oppressed are and regardless of who the oppressors are. We ask Allah to make us fully human and to always allow us to see and be and live and die on the side of the oppressed, whoever they are, and to never be on the side of the oppressors. And I remind myself and I remind all of the people who believe in the world of meaning, whether you call it God or Allah or Yahweh or whether you speak about the universe or whether you speak about karma, whoever is that, that, that thing that we all speak about, that reality, the realest of realities that we speak about that keeps track of love and lovelessness and of good and evil and of service, we ask for that one that we know is always in control, that we have the opportunity to get it right. I'm going to end with the words that Muslims end with, and it's a prayer that means, may peace be your state, but not only a peace of stillness, but may you be whole, may you be well, may you be unbroken, may you be what the Creator intended in all of your glory and in all of your full humanity. And we end when we say the words that are... Inherently a prayer for peace for us all. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.